Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1269, entitled Literally the End and the Beginning. Our podcast title today is Podcasting the Podcaster. I am Rob Jan, and thanks to Judith Papard, who has done the previous show today. Now, it's me here for two hours summer special, I suppose you would call it, of Zero G. Megan McHugh, our co-host, is taking a well-earned break, and here I am preparing to break you. Well, maybe not. We've done our Christmas show, so... No more Christmas songs in the Zero-G vein. Well, what's happening out there in the genre world? So much that we need two hours to talk about it today. I think we shall have a chat about Cats, the new movie musical. Nowhere near the existential transgenic nightmare that some people have feared it would be. Although it does have a few wobbly bits. And I don't mean just the bellies of some cats who had a little bit too much kibble. Or biscuits. Or dry food. Or whatever the hell you call it. In whichever country you are listening to this in. Which you could actually be doing. Because you might be... uh, doing audio on demand at rrr.org.au or eventually you may be listening to the podcaster which brings me to the podcast title for today podcasting the podcaster we are going to be chatting with Kayla Larson who is Zero G's podcaster and she's coming in to sort of break the fourth wall and talk about a television show in the Zero G genre the historical part of it at least that she's uh, been watching and also, I think I'll um, ask her to explain the intricities of the ongoing audio adventure that is Zero-G podcasting. Many people have been involved in that over the years, and I thank them all today. It is Kayla's day in the sun, quite literally. Actually, maybe not quite literally. The, uh, the cloud cover out there is pretty damn heavy at the moment. And speaking of which, if you are listening to this driving around out in the countryside, anywhere, mind how you go. Pay attention to all local warning networks and emergency services broadcasts in the state of Victoria and further afield. Lots of places are experiencing all sorts of trials and tribulations at the moment. But of course, the doctor will save the day. Well, in a fictional sense at least. And I wanted to mention that the new Doctor Who New Year's Day episode is coming up here on Australian TV on the 2nd of January. Uh, I think they've got a, f- a special on ABC iView on the, in the morning after the, uh, the United Kingdom's broadcast, or maybe not so united at the moment. Uh, which will be then 
broadcast here on the ABC at 7:30 p.m. So this is the uh, the cr- the New Year's special. Almost said Christmas because that's kind of been traditional, but you know it hasn't been that long a tradition really, just for the new Doctor. <laughs> and I mean by that the uh, the new era of Doctor Who, which is now substantially rather the old era when you think about it. <laughs> uh, yes, it's like um, any of the other big franchises that are continuously rebooted around the world. Now, uh, this is, of course, Jodie Whittaker's second season, and the series also has the other companions, which will be following along in her wake, um, which is to say um, Bradley Tossin and Mandy which is the actors' names. But as you probably know them, Graham, Ryan and Yasmin. And the first episode has um, Stephen Fry as a guest star, which is no real spoiler if you know anything about the show and have been following the stories about the new series. And uh, this is going to be one of the, uh, the star turns for the show. But Lenny Henry is also going to appear. Robert Glenister, remember him from um, Life on Mars, the series? And uh, I think um, Robert Glenister is going to play Thomas Edison alongside um, Goran Visnik, who's um, Nikola Tesla. So some other classic scientists appearing in Doctor Who coming up. This episode, I think, is written by uh, Jamie Magnus Stone and Chris Chibnall. Is, sorry, Chris Chibnall is the showrunner show and the writer, and uh, Jamie Magnus Stone is the director for this one, both of them uh, veterans of the Doctor Who series. I think there are 10 episodes in this season, uh, plus a special episode after that. So uh, uh, this is all going to happen in um, series 12 of Doctor Who. Now, I think we will give you a little bit of a... Uh, foreshadowing or is it a backshadowing it's hard to figure out with Doctor Who sometimes and this will be a track which will set the tone for the new series since it is called The Doctor and um, it is by their new composer no longer Murray Gold I suppose he's not no longer a new composer now after a full season of Doctor Who scoring Segan Akinola and this is uh, The Doctor, and it features uh, vocals by Holly Buhagia. Hi there, I'm Jen Saska. And I'm Sylvia Saska. And, and we're, we're the Twisted Twins, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Did you love it? It's so good for you, too. Heck yeah. Yeah, and it has indeed been good so far here on Zero G, science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio, in our first hour of our two-hour extended edition today. Now, that was Sagan Akinola, being the composer of a piece which featured some vocals by Holly Buhagia from the Doctor Who Series 11 original cel- television soundtrack, The Doctor. Doctor's coming to save us again soon on, well, a little bit after New Year's Day, which is great news. We could certainly new, use that use, uh, the intervention of the Time Lord in 2020. Do I still get to call her a Time Lord? Can I call her a Time Lady? What is the convention on that? Does it really matter? Not one whit. All right, now, speaking of 
the BBC, which of course is what we're talking about when we're uh, chatting about Doctor Who. Megan McKeough, our co-host, who's on a break at the moment, uh, mentioned some podcasts that were her favourites in our wrap-up of the, uh, the year's best in last week's episode. I don't have a whole lot of time to listen to podcasts, but inspired and uh, having a bit of a break myself, I decided to hunt one out. Now, my usual thing with podcasts is basically just um, time-shifting radio shows that uh, are on at inconvenient times for me to listen to. So that's basically what I do. But but earlier on last year and uh, the year before, I did manage to take the time to catch a few um, audio dramas, dram- dramatised um, books or so on as podcasts. Um, and this thing, in this case, it was uh, the couple that I first found were, not surprisingly, um, some Marvel Comics uh, adventures, which uh, were basically Avengers um, narrated live audio sort of things, uh, plays, basically. And then I shifted on to a few of our little pieces. And at the moment, I've just listened to a a really cool one called Forest 404 or 404. Now, that was on uh, BBC Radio 4. It's run its course now. So just at the moment, you can still hear it. Uh, It will eventually go off. I think it uh, aired originally in March last year and will probably last on on their... um, on their site for about a year. Usually that's about how long they go for. Uh, nine episodes. Forest 404 was written by Timothy X Attack. <laughs> that's A-T-A-C-K, who uh, is a frequent contributor to BBC Radio and also writes... Uh, what else does he write? Uh, oh, Doctor Who audio dramas for Big Finish Productions. And this Forest 404 is produced and written and directed by Becky Ripley uh, with theme music designed by Bonobo, which makes entirely sense, uh, good sense when you think about um, the theme of the thing, which I will allow you to discover as I continue to talk about it. Uh, sound designed by Graham Wall uh, with sounds by BBC Sounds. Now, the, this is actually a, um, the first drama podcast to top the iTunes charts. Um, now, you know 404, that's the um, hypertext um, 404, not found error, page not found, server not found error message. Um, and in this case, coming after Forest is pretty much literally what they're talking about, uh, that there are no more forests. So this is set in a dystopian future. Ah, yes, la, fa- flavour of the decade. Um, in a mega city. And uh, although it's a mega city, they don't have megabytes of data to spare uh, because data consumes memory and the energy to power it. So in this future, they are editing out the no longer relevant past, i.e., in this case, uh, sounds. Now, the young woman, Pan, um, the main character of the story, she's a sound editor, uh, editing out things that they no longer need and which would just take up 
space that they could use for other things in the city's vast, let's call it uh, memory banks. So, Pan is played by Pearl Mackey. Again, more echoes from Doctor Who. She plays Bill Potts, a uh, former Doctor Who companion, um, Peter Capaldi's era, basically. And she is going to have some problems because while she's editing out some particular sounds, and they do have a bit of fun with this, um, all the sounds that they're studying for discarding are from our era, basically, uh, from before the crash, the, um, the cataclysm that separates the slow time, our world, of the uh, contemporary era from this future dystopian time. Now, Pan is a very diligent worker. She's very good at what she's doing. And so, you know, as she quickly skims through things like um, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, nah, don't need that, or the uh, the audio from the first lunar landing, what's that? Gets rid of that too. Um, Beethoven, Bach, they all go by the wayside, no longer relevant. She stumbles across sounds that at first she thinks is a clip of um, the rather odd pre-crash music that we created in our own era. It's got a melody, it's got a bit of a, a bit of um, a discernible beat, um, but eventually she finds out that it's actually the sounds of a Sumatran rainforest. Now, this keys into a particular trope in this Forest 404 dramatic podcast, and they're looking at how and why human beings are comforted and relaxed by nature. And there's an entire burgeoning science about this. There's been, uh, we've done this sort of in an anecdotal way, uh, in a a sort of a less than scientific way, in the past, you know, people put forestry posters up on the wall and uh, calms them down and takes them to a, a more uh, restful place. You know, all the all the things that you can do, short of actually going outside into the uh, the natural environment. And so, these sort of, uh, if you will, analogs of um, the natural environment. In this case, it's audio, can actually transport people psychologically into a different place and the interesting thing about this podcast forest 404 is that each of the nine episodes is accompanied by two extra pods now some of them are lectures about the science involved in the particular episode So they've gotten together um, musicians, biofuturists, anthropologists, um, arborists, all sorts of people to talk about specific aspects and to expand upon the scientific principles that you've just heard in the dramatic podcast. So they've also provided, since sound is a a very important part of this podcast, I mean, and not (laughs) beyond the obvious that you would be able to hear it otherwise, um, They've gotten breakout tracks of the particular soundscapes featured so that you could listen to them uninterrupted. And I'll, we'll play you one of those in a moment. Uh, so 
the idea of this Forest 404 is a, is a kind of a, not a multimedia, but a multi-strand approach. When they originally broadcast it, they were also doing the Forest 404 data gathering project, which uh, allowed you to interact with the sounds that you would hear uh, from the natural environment and then to uh, respond in a way that would allow the scientists to gather data from that. And I think they got over 7,000 or so people responding to that, and that's all being crunched down now. So if you uh, do listen to this podcast, don't um, bother going to that unless you want to see maybe the results because they were going to post those there. The, that particular part of it, the interactivity thing's now closed off. Uh, but, you know, it's an interactive environment anyway when you're listening to a podcast. Your ears to their headphones. In which case, uh, I should mention, yes, this one, this podcast actually is a good one that works well with... Um, um, with good headphones, it uh, helps take you out of the uh, the environment that you're currently in, unless you happen to be in a rainforest or something like that, in which case, why are you bothering to listen to it? <laughs> now, apart from Pearl Mackey playing Pan, uh, there are some uh, other people of interest involved in it, but we'll get to those in a moment. I'll give you a bit of the track. Um, and this is the actual track that they use for the Sumatran rainforest, the one that, that triggers off this massive journey for the character of Pan in Forest 404. Now, I'm not going to take the BBC tag off it because that was part of the original thing and it will allow you to hear uh, the voices of some of the characters too. But nevertheless, you are not listening to BBC4, you are listening to Free Triple R FM. And we're talking about the um, the podcast, the dramatic podcast, Forest 404, and yes, it is science fiction. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, so what you heard just before then was... A little bit of the soundscape of Sumatran rainforest from Forest 404, a BBC Radio 4 dramatised science fiction podcast in nine parts, which can be accessed on their website. Now, as I was saying, it's uh, set in a dystopic future and basically people are editing the sounds of the past when they discover that particular one and it triggers a whole series of partially catastrophic events. Now, apart from Pearl Mackey from Doctor Who playing the character of Pan, the sound editor, uh, Tanya Moody also appears, or <laughs> audio appears at least. Um, we know her as General Panady from Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. But she's also been in um, the Discovery of Witches TV series and Sherlock and before then Neverwhere in the uh, old Neil Gaiman days. Pippa Haywood also contributes her vocal talents to this story. And there aren't too many others in the, uh, in the context of the, uh, the show. So, all right, with these um, nine episodes, you can also get the nine lectures or talks about scientific aspects of the series and also individual standalone soundscapes, as you've just heard before, the uh, the rainforest one. I think it's a really great way of doing science fiction drama on the radio, and it takes me right back. It's actually to my um, my own early seminal radio days when 
back in the 1970s, I used to listen to ABC Classics and they used to have, uh, or ABC FM as it was called, just straight call back then, um, and they'd have uh, many, many D- BBC um, dramatised audio adaptations of great science fiction and fantasy classics like uh, Lord of the Rings or um, indeed Star Wars. Uh, they had uh, several of the uh, the early Star Wars movies um, as audio dramas too. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, of course, and so on. And this BBC one now, the uh, Forest 404, reminded me strongly of that. Um, how does it play? I thought it played very well. Um, up until maybe the final episode, I'm not quite sure that they actually managed to... Uh, um, to nail the landing where I would have liked it to have gone. I think maybe they could possibly be setting it up for a sequel, but I don't know for sure. But any, in, in this case, the, uh, the journey was everything, I thought, uh, and it's um, a very evocative and, and rich soundscape, which breaks the fourth wall of radio drama in itself and also cleverly uses the prime aspect of radio and um, other... Audio, oral me, um, mediums to to actually give you something that's science fiction based upon sound. So I thought that was great. Forest 404 can be found on uh, BBC4's website and probably I would say at least up until um, March of 2020. All right, so uh, I think I'll go with a track here of a suitably environmental trend and this one is uh joan baez the um the main title for the 1972 douglas trumbull science fiction movie silent running and it's one of my favorite films uh a little bit um illogical in its own way but with a very very strong theme about the environment in the in their particular dystopic future they don't have any forests on earth either Uh, but they've sent them out into space. Um, This is where the the illogical part comes. Probably a political decision. Anything like that that's as crazy as that would have to be political. So they've they've parceled up Earth's remaining um, biomes, uh, natural biomes, and put them into domes and sent them into space in orbit around the solar system, or Saturn, I think, in particular, in these great big space freighters. Bruce Dern starred in this movie back in the uh, 70s. Douglas Trumbull's Silent Running with Joan Baez doing the uh, the main title track, Silent Running. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. You're listening to Zero G on 3RRR-FM. I played the companion to Patrick Trout and the Second Doctor, the Highlander, Jamie McCrimmon, and there can only be one. That's McCrimmon. Craig and Tour. Yeah, and that's one of those tracks which um, I have to remember to turn my announcer's microphone off on, otherwise I'm going to hum along and <laughs> badly. Joan Baez, the main title track for the 1972 science fiction film, the environmental science fiction film, Silent Running, a cautionary tale. Let's hope we don't end up there. Although the robots in that were pretty damn cute, weren't they? Now... Here we are, donning our bavers, my C-Lab 2020 bavers, because we're coming up to that year very, very soon. And, well, I think um, 
we should uh, look at cats next. Ah, people running and screaming. Cats and dogs living together in the streets. Ah, the end of civilization as we know it. The new musical Cats. <laughs> well, musical movie, I should say. The adaptation of the movie. When I saw the live-action musical many years ago now, must be at least a couple of decades, the first time, um, I thought it was great. The dancing and the songs. and some bit of a watershed moment for me. Although not perhaps my very, very favourite musical, and everybody has their own fave in that particular category. Uh, it's rather like Who's Your Favourite Doctor? Or which Star Wars movies do you like? Or which Star Trek starship captain do you prefer to lead you on adventures through the above and beyond? So anyway, the original Cats musical, um, straight down the line with T.S. Eliot's poems from his old possum's book of Practical Cats, so they created that musical from those poems, which was no mean feat, rather difficult to do. So, especially because they didn't want to weigh the whimsy down with additional messaging. So, you know, it's not really any metaphor for uh, anything at all in the 80s, apart from the fact that there's a little bit of a, uh, <laughs> a, bit of a send-up of popular music, musicals in there, because it's just about cats, really. <laughs> As it is, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, when he got the uh, the first production with back in the day, um, I think they did ex intelligently expand upon themes of ageing and inclusion versus exclusion already present in the poems and left it at that. Now, they uh, sorted it all out with some additional poems to make it into a musical. Um, Eliot's second wife and literary executor Valerie came along to Andrew Lloyd Webber with extra poems and her approval right when they were starting out working on the, the Cats musical. Um, and I think they, uh, they rather practically, in a practical Cats way, worked up those extra songs from um, other Eliot poems. It all made sense. And of course, as we know, um, Cats uh, kept Eliot's um, publisher, Faber and Faber, afloat with royalties and um, helped boost sales in other T.S. Eliot works. And so since Eliot was a Faber and Faber director for so long, I think he would have been all right with that. With this new film, directed by Tom Hooper, and you will know him, perhaps, as a British-Australian film and TV director. Um, he uh, also worked on uh, shows like EastEnders and Cold Feet on British television. And the King's Speech, the movie, that is, the um, movie of uh, Les Miserables. And some episodes of um, his Dark Materials, the... Uh, 
call it a science fiction uh, television show, or perhaps science fantasy, more than like. And now here he is, directing a fairly big-budget Cats movie. So, he and Lee Hall did the screenplay for this one. And here's a really weird thing. It actually has a plot. I have been quite surprised to find Cats actually has a plot. I kind of had this vague sort of uh, wibbly-wobbly notion of how it was originally when I saw the musical. So, yeah, yeah, I kind of get what they're working towards. But it's only in watching this movie that it actually coalesces into an actual plot. Um, It's basically set in London. Um, A kitten named Victoria has been cruelly abandoned by her human owner, which... I've got to say, any anybody who does that kind of thing is just so on the outer as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I am quite wet about cats. Um, so she is uh, rescued by a group of alley cats and they initiate her into the world of jellical cats, which is a special kind of cat um, whose uh, exact nature is explained comprehensively within the framework of the musical. But it's a special time in the Jellicle tribe's particular life as a new special Jellicle cat will be chosen to ascend to the heaviside layer. And I think this is probably a metaphor for um, the death of a cat and uh, nine lives and all that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, there's a bit of um, poignant um, um, ear scratching going on there with that particular part of it. As I said before, um, Cats is, uh, has a lot to do with um, ageing and um, perceptions of ageing and um, careers. And, and it's kind of, a, it is a bit of a, a, a muter for, for um, life in the theatrical world. So it's a bit fourth wall breaking. Now, this film has a pretty strong ensemble cast, I thought, uh, including um, Judy Dench and Ian McKellen, Idris Elba, James Corden, Rebel Wilson, Taylor Swift, and um, Francesca Haywood uh, appearing as the uh, the cat Victoria. So, you know, some of these people we know from other places. Um, some of them we think are... People very well known to us in the in the genre. Judy Dench, of course, um, she's playing old Deuteronomy, the cat in this, a gender swap role in this one. But um, what difference does that make? It's entirely appropriate for Dame Judy Dench to get get a crack at a role in Cats at last. Back in the day, for the original musical, she rehearsed but snapped an Achilles tendon and had to bow out. Uh, across the um, the aisle from her is Ian McKellen playing one of the uh, the old theatrical cat, Gus. And so there's a whole thing going on there between them. Uh, James Corden plays Buster for Jones and Rebel Wilson is Jenny Any Dots. Um, both cats function as a kind of a comic relief in this show um, and function quite well, I thought, in terms of that. <laughs> and um, we've got Idris Elba playing McCavity, which is a... Uh, a uh, shorthand for Moriarty, the Napoleon of uh, cat crime. A very, very sinister portrayal. 
channeling, I think, um, uh, possibly Killmonger from um, Black Panther at some points in the uh, performance. But not it's just scary enough for the little ones, um, but uh, maybe not too much, you know, just a villain, really. Um, Taylor Swift plays uh, one of um, his hench cats, and we've also got <laughs> Ray Winston playing another minion of... Um, Cavity. Some of these roles have uh, evolved from the musical and shaken down a bit, and they make a lot more sense here for me watching it in the film. I don't know what I was thinking when I watched the original musical a couple of decades ago. I just enjoyed the songs and the dance. Um, Francesca Haywood, who's playing uh, the new cat, could probably be the definition, the dictionary definition for young hopeful, both in uh, her look and in the way that she approaches this particular role. She's also going to be in um, a production called Romeo and Juliet, Beyond Words as well, which I can see. She's going to have the title role of um, Juliet. Uh, Laurie Davison appears as magical Mr. Mistopheles. Uh, he was, um, speaking of Shakespeare, appeared in uh, uh, the 2017 British television series Will, playing William Shakespeare. Uh, Robbie Fairchild gets a pretty important role here as a character called Monku Strap, <laughs> uh, an American dancer, um, actor and producer, uh, all of which are very important because he's got um, a lot of schlepping to do. Um, standout um, performer Stephen McRae playing Skimbleshanks, the railway cat an Australian ballet dancer, and he gets to do one hell of a tap dance sequence in this film. Bravo. Uh, he was um, also uh, in, in the uh, on the stage playing uh, the Mad Hatter in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and um, also uh, played the creature in 2016 in Liam Scarlett's full-length ballet of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Oh, a uh, special mention to the Lair Twins playing two cats called Plato and Socrates. I last saw them in uh, Men in Black International playing some um, alien bounty hunters or something like that. They, they are exceptional dancers. And I really actually could have seen, uh, done with a bit more of them in this. Now, okay, that's pretty... Um, much a summary of the uh, the people appearing in this, but of course they don't appear as strictly speaking as humans or people. They are done up as cats. Now they use a CGI costuming to do this, uh, giving them um, having them wear uh, motion suits, motion capture suits, which is to say um, leotards with reference points on them that can then be um, used in the computer to provide them with digital fur and tails and ears. Uh, for myself, it seems pretty much in the spirit of the very many Cats theatrical show lives, probably nine lives by now. So in a way, this is a traditional experimental reach out to the avant-garde CGI. Um, this has freaked people out. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, though, that um, Zero-G's postcode is pretty much in the uncanny valley. If it's weird, we're all right with it. So considering that 2020 is kind of the year of Dark Angel, do you remember that Jessica Alba series where um, she had some cat DNA? 
um, the transgenic uh, human-animal hybrid thing is um, alive and purring. I've seen a lot weirder stuff than this. It, it just didn't bother me at all. You know, um, Dark Angel, um, hell of a lot of animes. Um, the Island of Dr. Moreau, less happily perhaps. Uh, the high evolutionary in Marvel Comics with his animal creatures. Um, every anthropomorphic cartoon uh, and yeah more than a few horror movies like splice so the actual concept doesn't frighten me away that they've um, they've, they've, they've transposed humans and animals in this context um, it's not real it's fictional <laughs> at least at least i don't think it's real and I think it works quite well for the most part, but yeah, there are some um, CGI glitches which I actually um, found uh, more intrusive than the uh, the very notion of um, of doing using CGI costumes on these actors. I, I didn't find that an existential threat. <laughs> There's um, a lot of people seem to have done online. Um, but I did find that some of the problems with the CGI did uh, lift me out of the production a little bit every now and then. Um, I think um, when uh, Universal Pictures sent out uh, new digital copies of the movie to rectify some some uh, fairly careless um, CGI problems, like uh, one stage um, um, Judy Dench's um, hand showed up as a human hand without having the CGI fur added to it. Uh, you know, these were these were problems that um, stem from the fact that Tom Hooper was still editing the damn thing um, right up to the uh, the premiere of the film. No excuse for that, apart from the fact that they've had to meet deadlines and so on. These things do happen in Hollywood. Worse things happen at sea, but not in CGI, apparently. Um, so yeah, there's a few bits of haloing of the characters and. Uh, what I would call wonky green screen, you know, just as a, a metaphor. It's probably not exactly that particular thing that's gone wrong with it. Um, on the other hand, or the other poor, it does work quite well when they um, they uh, they use a, a kind of a... Um, well, how would I say this? Let me have back up a bit and uh, just think about it for a second. Uh, it's when they, um, they do... Uh, backlighting of the characters now if you've got cats or have um, walked around with cats or uh, done anything with cats in terms of looking after them and feeding their precious little <laughs> yes love-hate relationship with cats there but you will note that if they are backlit you can see their their fur in a fuzzy sort of um, halo effect around them and that actually is quite well depicted in this film i, I thought at least uh, something that doesn't work quite so well is the scale of the cats uh, in the uh, the ginormous um, human-sized sets that they have. Well, why doesn't this work? I had a good think about it, and I thought that maybe, because cats are not vertical axis creatures mostly, except when they're um, standing up on their hind paws to do something naughty, like grab food off a table or anything practically uh, in Mr. Data's cat Spot's case, uh, reaching up onto the um, Enterprise's console to fire the phases, an unfortunate <laughs> juncture. Um, I think that what's happening is because they're not vertical axis creatures, but humans are, um, that the, the the 
conflict between horizontal and vertical axis confuses the scale. So although you could probably compute the numbers and uh, come out to it being about where they are in many of the scenes, but not all, and there is some consistency problems there too, I think, um, it doesn't look right, which is um, a pity because it actually is quite something quite major. So they lose some points there for that with the Cats musical movie. And there are some virtual lighting issues too, I think, that um, might have caused some problems along the way. So anyway, you know, okay, their, their special effects are not quite where they should be on this uh, production, this major. Didn't kill the movie for me. Uh, I actually stopped noticing all that after a while and just enjoyed the songs and the dancing. They do have a few problems with the dancing, but that's kind of um, almost a new tradition now. Occasionally they get carried away with quick cuts and edits uh, so that you lose the sense of the dancing, which which is a shame because choreography's pretty much the highlight of um, a dance musical like this one and you really it really deserves to be seen in um, in all its glory that said they don't do it all the time um, if there are more uh, sort of um, feature actors and that they will take the time to um, show them what they're doing and sometimes they just did very fast editing uh, uh, possibly because of the theme of the song um, the one about um, the two uh, McCavity henchman uh, Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser. That's a very much a fast-paced, quick-cut sort of song. Uh, it's a pity, and, and I don't like that when they do the same thing too much in, um, in a superhero movie when they're doing uh, combat choreography, because these are extensions of the characters uh, and do replace dialogue in, in some cases and helps advance the story arc for the characters too. So yeah, there are some uh, issues there in the uh, the visual effects part. And I would say that a lot of those are probably just due to a bit of a rush job there. Naughty people should not do that, but they did. <laughs> so let's have a, a track here. Now this actual track is from the original cast um, uh, recording of Cats, the, the big one that, used to, that sold about 10 trillion units back in the day. And it's um, Mungo, Jerry and Teaser, which, of course, I chose just because I happened to have spoken about it before. Yes, showing remarkable foresight there. <laughs> Hi, this is Scott Bakula. Welcome aboard Zero-G. Yeah, here we are with Mungo, Jerry and Teaser. like the names from Cats, <laughs> from the original uh, Broadway production with Andrew Lloyd Webber at the helm there as he has been tried. I think he's one of the producers on this new film. I don't think they just waved him over it because he did actually work upon the uh, the new songs. So, yeah, we were talking about the uh, the Cats adaptation, Rob Jan here on Zero G, and we're on Triple RFM. And like I said, I don't find the new musical anywhere near like the existential threat that quite a few other people seem to have done. Um, and I do wonder how much of that is just people uh, just having fun with the idea of being able to say it's pawful or <laughs> any other the other puns. But, you know, everyone takes their own flavoured chalk top to the cinema. So if they don't particularly like it, well, yeah. Like I said, it did have some um, CGI problems that I could see. But other than that, other than that, I thought um, it worked pretty well. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly going to be scared of something like this. Um, I got used to the big eyes in Battle Angel Alita in about 10 minutes on screen. So, 
CGI cats mixed in with people, it's not really going to frighten the heck out of me. Uh, I thought they did the um, most of the cat motion quite well. Uh, obviously, they're uh, they're <laughs> if they've used some kind of cat consultant, um, they've they've done their research and and got it got it done pretty well. I thought, especially some horizontal extensions with the cats. Um, the cats stretch and they like appear like they're about three times their natural size. The humans work really well for that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I was saying that the uh, the standout dancing in the film, I think, was the uh, the tap dancing, and plus, um, which was by uh, mostly by Stephen McRae, Australian ballet dancer, when he played Skimble Shanks, the Railway Cat, and of course um, Francesca Hayward playing Victoria the Cat. Um, she does an amazing, quite literal turn in this film, carrying uh, a lot of the the actual dance action, or providing bridging pieces for everybody else as well. So I thought they did all of that um, pretty damn efficiently in this film. Now, in terms of uh, Zero G's yeah, nah, maybe rating, where would I fall on this one? I'd give it a um, a yeah, yeah, not a not a hell yeah or a row yeah, but a yeah. I didn't I didn't um, find it particularly particularly damaging to my to my psyche to watch cats. Um, obviously a lot of people have already decided that uh, because it's just bombed totally at the box office. I have a feeling this one might go into the uh, the cult classics sort of zone in uh, five, ten years' time. Who knows? Uh, there you go. Uh, not everyone sits down at the same place at the table for these things. And obviously, uh, well, you know... <laughs> It's a little orphan kitty as far as um, popularity is concerned, and that's all right by me. Uh, they did do uh, a new song, at least one new song for um, this production. They've trimmed and, and a few out and changed characters and blended them and broken characters apart because this is a, a movie and you can do that because you've got more cast members to play with instead of uh, with a stage um, musical. Uh, you've often got people doing double duty um, because they've got to change... Um, well, there's probably only a certain number of people who can fit backstage, for one thing, and for another, it's more expensive to have um, somebody playing every single role. But anyway, they did this new song. Um, Taylor Swift and um, Andrew Lloyd Webber worked this one up called Beautiful Ghosts, and it sort of um, echoes around the uh, the standout song uh, Memory, which in this film, that is to say uh, Memory, is executed uh, with panache and with a lot of nuance by Jennifer Hudson playing Grizabella. She's got some um, great vocals in there. She makes memory her own. It's not an easy song by all accounts. What the hell would I know? <laughs> if I were to attempt cats, I'd pretty much sound like one of my own cats wailing on the fence. But um, Hudson made it happen in the film several times. Uh, and as I said, she made it her own. She puts a lot of emotion into it and also knows when to back out of that. But she comes across as a very broken sort of character, which, of course, is the uh, the Grizabella character in the in the story. And I mentioned it earlier on that I was actually quite surprised that Cats does have a story. <laughs> so it's not just a bunch of cats caterwauling and uh, jumping around a junkyard. Uh, they, it actually does make kind of sense. I don't know sure if it's... Um, Makes a whole lot of sense, but there is a story in there. So there you go. But I thought I'd play uh, Beautiful Ghosts now, which is Victoria's song from the motion picture soundtrack of Cats. And um, 
Yeah, what I liked about this one is that it does interweave very, very nicely with uh, memory um, and it supports and cradles it in a way that um, I thought was fairly adept and really I think you'd have to get Andrew Lloyd Webber to work on it to make that happen. So it feels like a natural extension of that. It also feels like they've included some T.S. Eliot ideas in it too, um, beyond just the... Um, the tropes of um, ageing and the uh, uh, the shutting down of um, theatrical careers, which is part of the original musical. So here we go with Beautiful Ghosts, Victoria's song from Cats. <laughs> Yeah, we just gave you our podcast theme there for good reason. We'll get into that in a second. But we were just playing Beautiful Ghosts, Victoria's Song from the motion picture soundtrack of Cats. And that is uh, that was actually um, uh, Francesca Haywood uh, plays Victoria in the Cats movie uh, doing this song. There is a Taylor Swift version of that floating around. Uh, she and Andrew Lloyd Webber composed that new song for the musical. Oh, yeah. You know, if anyone was bound to find something like Cats um, acceptable, it would probably be Zero G. <laughs> so, after Cats, we are now moving over to a discussion about a historical crime show called Peaky Blinders. Now, I didn't know too much about this. I have watched two episodes of it, and I thought, well... I know somebody who does. So I'd like to introduce Kayla Larson. G'day, Rob. Hello, everybody. Kayla is Zero G's podcaster and has been for how long is it now? Uh, I think it's just ticked over 12 months. 12 yeah. months. Awesome. So this actually actually makes me a bit nervous because Kayla knows all of our vocal problems <laughs> and our tics and all sorts of things. I'm yet to find out mine, though, so that should be interesting oh, when yes. I listen back. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, do we like do we disrupt the space time continuum by having the podcaster in on the pod? Oh, it might do. We'll have to yeah. wait until we finish up. Maybe a black hole will just open and yeah. we'll get gobbled right up. Or at least a black star, which of course <laughs> we do have here today for Perfect. our David Bowie track. So, okay, uh, where do we find this Peaky Blinders show? Uh, so Peaky Blinders is a Netflix creation, yes. so all current five seasons can be found on there. Um, and there's six in each, uh -huh. and they go for a solid hour. And I did a bit of quick mathing the other day, and I worked out that since the series started back in 2013, yeah. and if you haven't started yet, then you've got a blissful 1,800 hours to tuck into. 1,800 hours? 1,800, and it's so perfect. <laughs> um, it seems very fitting as the show is loosely based on the Peaky Blinders, um, a real 19th century youth gang who mm. are active in Birmingham from the 1890s to the early 20th century. But this one's set in 1919. Yeah, a little bit after. Um, so after World War I, um, and it has a lot of impact on the characters in particular who went away to war. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, that kind of forms a lot of the violence and PTSD um, and a lot of the drug taking that happens in there as well. But that kind of goes into their business um, sense in the same regard. Um, yeah, it's a very, very... Groovy show for anyone who likes, um, I guess, something 
in the theme of crime, drama, and with a really excellent soundtrack. I, I feel like the um, like it's like a, a sort of the underbelly of um, Downton Abbey. <laughs> I I have not watched the Downtown Abbeys. Yeah, the Downtown. Go go Downtown with the Abbey. Yeah. I'll stay in Birmingham for a little bit longer, but yeah, I will venture Downtown mm-hmm. at your recommendation. I of course have never been to Birmingham, but. Um, I do know that it was uh, after the Great War, of course, it, it had boomed during World War I, uh, big munitions uh, manufacturing area. So uh, the, the look of the show is, it's a little bit like Dante's Inferno. There's sparks everywhere, foundries, soot, um, the, uh, the sort of miners' cottages that you see in these the terrace houses. And, and it looks horrible to be in that town whenever they actually go outside of the town. Uh, into the countryside, you get this. You actually get a sense of relief. Yeah, it's a bit romantic outside of the city, but then when they're in there, I think that contrast of their costumes, so like three-piece suits and yeah. beautiful little hats and dresses and, you know, curly hair, it just really has that 1920s nostalgia. And you can kind of think it's quite livable with all the sort and, you know, walking through um, animal <laughs> droppings here and there. Um, but yeah, no, it's a really great put together show. I think, I don't know if you've done um, much research. I think you were saying you've watched two episodes, uh-huh. but um, the creator was Stephen Knight, an uh-huh. English screenwriter and director. Um, and so I think it was at the end of the season, um, number four, after they'd won an award for it, he confirmed that there'd be seven altogether um, and it's going to be basically set. Um, a story of a family between the two wars, so coming right up until the 1940s, uh, which is pretty great in terms of genre. I couldn't find much on what Stephen Knight has been involved in that I was familiar with, but perhaps you've heard of C, which is coming out um, potentially already this year, if not 2020, mm-hmm. and that's on Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah, he was... Uh, I mean, I know another writer called Stephen Knight, but um, that uh, this one, he's, he's, he's sort of... Um, his CV has passed me by. There's not a whole lot of um, zero G sort of fodder in there. Uh, it reminds me of that family basis, <laughs> family show. It reminds me of Deadwood or Boardwalk Empire or The Sopranos. Yeah. So it's got that sort of thing going on. Very much so. Um, but the characters are pretty great. I don't know if you've, you might recognize the lead um, main protagonist, mm-hmm. who the character is Thomas uh, Shelby, Tommy Shelby to his mates played by Killian Murphy, an Irish actor. And I remember him from, I think it was like a an early 2000s film um, called 28 Days Later, Zombie yeah, of Flick. Course. Absolutely terrifying. Oh, which which part did he play? He was the main guy. Oh, the, mess- the bike messenger. <laughs> okay. He woke up in the hospital all alone and had to slowly realise that these zombies can run with the speed at which anything undead should not move. But then he promptly does not do get, play to his main strength. He doesn't get a bike and ride ride faster than the, the running zombies. He's just very good at running. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe if he got on a bike, then he'd teach the zombies how to do it. So yeah. best just to oh my God. little jam bonds. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, he's a great character. He's a working-class man, highly decorated war hero, hmm. which ensures he's, you know, respected on the streets of Birmingham as well as those in a higher class. Um, and I think one of the other strengths to Peaky Blinders is you've got, Tommy as your main male character. But uh-huh. then on the other edge of the sword is Polly Gray, who's the aunt of the Shelby brothers uh-huh. and a definite matriarch of the family. Um, and that character is played by Helen McCrory, British actor who, if Megan was here, I'm sure she would 
pop up right straight away and say, yeah. <laughs> I know, she uh, she played in um, Harry Potter as mm. Narcissa Malfoy, mother of Draco. Um, is that is that significant? Is she doomed to play? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's that loving element of the matriarch and also that fierce power mm-hmm. that she really has in both of those characters. I don't know if she's doomed to play. She oh, now I think about all the other things. Yeah, she she's is. a lot of stage productions <laughs> and Macbeth and you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a time of flux in the uh, in Birmingham in nineteen nineteen. The Great Wars ended. Uh, uh, they've got gangs, gang violence ramp- rampant throughout the city, um, although it's kind of controlled by the Peaky Blinders and a few others. Uh, unionism is on the rise. Uh, communism is is a, an issue for the powers that be. Uh, Winston Churchill is upset by all of this. and Yeah, I think out of the characters that they bring in from, you know, historical backing, mm. Winston Churchill is probably a loosely based on his role <laughs> and his relationship that he forms with one particular gang member, mm. but they do draw on, um, you said, the union um, groupings there, and I, I wasn't sure that it was a real person until, you know, oh. delve in later, but I did the later, and I can confirm that historically valued um, Jesse Eden uh-huh. is mentioned, and it, it's absolutely one of my favourite episodes. There's so much, like, strong female power, mm. and everyone just, like, puts their tools down um, and it's based on the first kind of walkout organised by the Quakers and this character, Jesse Eden, played by, I think it was Charlie Murphy. Uh-huh. Um, and it just kind of shows how much equality there is amongst um, the Shelby family already, but uh-huh. also where it's beginning for the rest of society. Um, and so that's a true fact that they, you know, draw along this um, actual person and brought into the show. And when you mentioned that they're kind of moving towards fascism yeah. later, again, they've brought in an actual person. Um, a real fascist. A real fascist. Yeah. <laughs> Oswald Mosley is yep. the character based on an actual fascist uh-huh. politician yep. who was like an ast- astrocrat. Um, as well. I think that's probably the cats coming over there and making sure I can't say aristocrat very well. <laughs> <laughs> and he gained thousands of um, supporters in the UK yes. and he survived until like the year, age of 80. Mm. So he only passed away in the 90s. So yeah, adding these like spicy little characters who are actually real. I understand, you know, if we lose everything in the future, we might think that Peaky Blinders is an actual show, but <laughs> it's so good that they do It's that. about as actual a show as Deadwood is in yeah. In, in some cases, uh, Deadwood does the same thing. They, the, the Peaky Blinders were more um, uh, sort of uh, operational before the war. Uh, other gangs sort of moved in after, so they've lifted that and changed it over a bit in time. So same with Deadwood. They, they took incidents from later on and sort of put it all together. A nice stitching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, people need stitching in this because the Peaky Blinders name um, refers to the to the uh, either the urban legend or perhaps the fact that they they stitched um, razor blades into their, the, the peaks of their caps. Yeah, it's definitely a myth. Maybe it came later mm. <laughs> because, um, yeah, historically, I think they cost a lot of money, those, like, one particular little razor and how much money wasn't yeah. around during that time. But even just the thought of having, you know, a bit of a bread knife in there, I'm mm. sure that would have done a bit of damage. But they definitely... Probably would have done a bit of damage to yourself. You're walking around <laughs> and you tip your hat to somebody. It's like, ah... Correct. More of a nod then. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you like throw your hat onto the hat stand and take off the top of the hat stand. It's very like Bondian in a way. Uh, enter Sam Neill, Chief Inspector Campbell, who's an, uh, a breaker of the IRA from Belfast. And so they send him in 
to uh, recruit some special constables and to clean up the streets of Birmingham. But, I mean, I've watched two episodes and by the second episode he's, well, it's a minor spoiler, he's working with, with uh, Tommy. That, is Sam new? Yeah. Working with Tommy is he, is he working? Well, well, you never know. That's not. the beauty of this show, <laughs> Rob, that you, you never can really trust whose loyalties lie where. He didn't shake his hand when he made the deal, did That's he? Correct. Oh. <laughs> That's correct. But again, it. maybe he is. Uh, I also noticed um, that Alexander Siddig is uh, appearing in the uh, the series as well in season season three. He plays a, a portrait artist. Uh, Ale- Alexander Siddig played um, Doctor Bashir in Deep Space Nine, oh, great, Star Trek yeah. context. So I know him for, very well from that. And he that. has a nice romantic uh, involvement with one character in particular. Ah, no okay. For you. <laughs> so the show isn't finished; it's still in production, and uh, they're going for season seven. Yeah, I think a season seven will definitely um, kind of wrap things up for them and it just seems prolific in how much they can achieve. Oh. I think they'd be very tired by the end of the season seven <laughs> and just want to retire to that countryside that you talked about earlier. Get, get out of the, uh, the, <laughs> the dark satanic mills. Yeah, I can't. I hope you do stick with it, Rob, because I think it's in about season three that there is a particular character that comes into it uh-huh. who we'd all recognise from Game of Thrones. Um, well, all of us who've watched more than one season of Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 it's hard for me to catch up. The zero-G burden is that you'll see a couple of episodes of a show to review it. Then you've got to move on to the next one. Yeah, you could just put everything in, like, fast-forward speed for a little bit. You might be thinking that everyone's talking like cats, but that's fine. <laughs> you can do that. Well, yeah, Netflix I, I is experimenting with that. I will that. not admit that sometimes I put Rob and Megan in fast speed <laughs> so I can edit quicker, but that's a little trick of the trade. <laughs> the, the chipmunk show. <laughs> we can do that too. Uh, all right. Well, um, you were saying the music's really good and I did uh, do a bit of an analysis of it and it is. Yes. Because, of course, um, David Bowie was a fan of the show. Oh, great. Uh, in fact, um, they were saying that they still – you tell me. Well, how do you pronounce his name again? Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy. It's one of those Irish names that you just need somebody who's yeah. been Irish to tell you. <laughs> like, like Siobhan. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah. Or Aoife. Or, um, yes, many, many it's ones. It's many guessing game. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- they probably run a, uh, a book on it with the Peaky Blinders and you have to bet on it. And if you get it wrong, they throw it. They, what do they do? They cut you and throw you into just the... a bit of slicing and dicing. They slice you and throw you into the cuts. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, so, uh, yeah, um, he gave um, David Bowie one of his caps from the hit show when he found out as a fan. I so have he, no he, idea. You know, but Bowie sent him a photograph back with um, razors sewn into the edge and yep. that sort of stuff. So they used actually uh, a David Bowie um, uh, song in the series, uh, Lazarus, but they also used some cover versions. Yeah, I think Anna Calvi, mm-hmm. who um, worked on the score for season five, she did a cover of um, Lady Grinning Soul. And mm. I'm not sure what season that was in, but yeah, it definitely has like mm. this continuity with like the artists that they're choosing and kind of that familiar rock, well, ethereal, kind of a little bit punky sound at times too. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're being a little bit, um, quite a bit anachronistic in their music, but that's definitely. fine. We're used to that. <laughs> I, I saw. I think it uh, works for the young kids. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, they um, they used um, "Red Right Hand," so they did a cover. Laura Mar- Marling did the cover of the uh, the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds song, uh, and so this particular version comes from season four, episode six. Uh, Laura Marling doing "Red Right Hand," so I thought I'd play that rather than the Nick Cave one because Triple R listeners are more than familiar with the 
they definitely might be. <laughs> which means if I really want to rouse them up and get them rioting in the streets, I play a cover, <laughs> which is how zero-G rolls. <laughs> zero-G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. Oh, that view is tremendous. And here you are, Zero-G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio with Laura Marling's cover version of Red Right Hand from Peaky Blinders. Oh, Peaky. We're here <laughs> talking to Kayla Larson, Zero-G's podcaster, who today is breaking the fourth wall of production and talking about the historical show Peaky Blinders on Netflix. On the Netflix, mm. yeah. Um, really great show, if anyone hasn't watched it. I'm still yet to convince Rob to go the whole way. <laughs> time, you know, for a, for a time, not a time lord exactly. I'd be a time surf or something like that. Uh, I just don't have enough time to watch everything. Um, uh, so I was going to ask you if it, if it is finished, did it end well? But they haven't finished, so I can't say that. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work. Cliffhangers uh, at the end of each. Do you have some favourite episodes? Um. I think the one where all the women put down their tools mm-hmm. and walk out in retaliation, um, if you know, equality of work and having a female toilet. <laughs> and, yeah, that's so um, based on Jessie Eden, played by Charlie Murphy. Yeah. And she made history in the 1920s for anyone who's just tuning in now mm-hmm. um, and was drawing on her extraordinary life and a passionate communist trade union activist. Yeah. So even though I think the whole episode wasn't as strong for me, there's those moments of female empowerment that I think really kick it off. Mm. Yeah. What was the episode I saw? Um, they were getting quite strongly into uh, the idea that everybody who'd come back from World War I was damaged in some way or another. And you could tell, I mean, apart from the obvious guy who's, uh, what was his name? I think it was... The brother? Um, they called him Whiz, Danny Whizbang. Whizbang uh, being yeah. the uh, the noise that a particular uh, bit of ordinance from the war makes. And he, he was totally like um, shell-shocked and, and had um, violent issues Definitely. stemming from that. But they still work with each other and around those types of means um, and they kind of powder it where they need to. I think he was played by one of the Woodward brothers, actually, um, who we've had on, we've had one, at least one of them on Zero G before. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, anyway, uh, (laughs) non sequitur there. Uh, Yeah, so um, this show, does it, uh, do you think it um, could do any spin-offs? Do you think there'd be a a potential for um, a new series later on? I think there's such a potential for there to be spin-offs just because of all the different gangs that they kind of feud with. So mm-hmm. they go over to New York at one point, um, you know, they get a run-in with the mafia there. There's a, oh. a few storylines on, or one storyline, but a few episodes on a Fabergé egg and the Russians. And <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of different elements. And then you've got the Billy Boys, who are like this Scottish group that come into it. They're the ones who run the racetrack, aren't they, or something like that? Uh, the Billy Boys? Yeah. They do all have kind of different fingers in pies of betting and fixing. Oh, what about Chinese gangs? Uh, I noticed um, um, there was an early uh, sort of mention of some Chinese characters in it. Uh, yeah, so recently, um, the most recent season has a little element of that and I okay. won't say how um, widely they are focused on, but I, I think that they, you know, if they could go for the seven or more years, then they're going to get every gang that's ever been and put them in the show. Oh. <laughs> Okay, well, um, we were mentioning uh, Annie Calvi in context of uh, the musical score for the show. 
um, for Peaky Blinders. Um, she she went from being uh, doing a cover of the David Bowie track "Lady Grinning Soul" to uh, contributing more substantially to the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. So in season five, um, she was called on to do the score, um, and so for my understanding, that also involves being able to choose which particular sound tracks are like how the soundtrack is completely made. Yeah. And so she chose, um, I think there was a track that ended up in like one or the first one or two seasons and they don't choose to reuse the songs in particular, but she's still chosen people like, you know, PJ Harvey or Johnny Cash, um, but gone with smaller known names like Idols. Mm. Um, and I think they were a Manchurian band. Uh, so yeah, I just kind of like creating that motley, but total theme of and a little bit punkish. And there's several um, soundtrack albums available for Peaky Blinders too. Yeah, I feel like they might be a little bit um, fan-made, Yeah, to be honest. <laughs> Just on my Spotify playlist um, yeah. where I see them then. Well, we'll have um, Annie Calvi set up and play Lady Grinning Soul, the Bowie cover, of course, which um, fulfills our ob- obligation to always play a couple of uh, Bowie-related tracks each week on Zero G, or at least one. Uh, today. I think we do have another one later on. So here we go with Lady Grinning Soul. This is Peter Woodward. I play the Technomage Galen in Babylon 5 and Crusade. And you are listening to Zero G. Who do you serve? And who do you trust? Yeah. Well, we certainly trust the lady there who gave us a pretty good cover of Lady Grinning Soul. Anna Kelvey from her Strange Weather EP, but also from the soundtrack of the Netflix series Peaky Blinders, who we've got our podcaster in today, Kayla Larson, talking to us about it. So in summation, Peaky Blinders as a series, like thumbs up, thumbs down? Um, two thumbs up mm-hmm. from myself. Um, yeah, there's definitely a, a lot to follow and be interested by. And even if you just go there for the music, mm-hmm. put it on in the background and you'll have a pretty rad time. <laughs> I wouldn't put the thumbs too high up because, um, you know, that dreaded um, Chief Inspector Campbell, he's got a habit of breaking thumbs. So, you know, <laughs> the one time I think be. I've really disliked Sam Neill. <laughs> it's not him, it's yeah, the character. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? He, he, he should play more villains, actually. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. that's probably the best role anyone can play in as an actor. You mm. get to bring so much out in them. So this show is like so many other shows uh, on Netflix. This is uh, Zero G, Rob Jan and Kayla Larson talking about Peaky Blinders on Triple R FM here in the second hour of our two-hour summer special today. Now, this is a thing. It's uh, getting close to 2020 and... Thing, there are so many things that um, characterise the last decade and the, the rise of streaming, certainly one of them. Um, it's become so accessible now and it's taken the place of free-to-air television partly. But in, in a way, it's also like um, uh, the mixed mediums that we have, um, 
vinyl we still have kicking around uh, resurging yeah, I'm working on my vinyl collection but i think yeah. after maybe having five different streaming services like when do you call it quits like how many do you have <laughs> well i remember that um and i never had it but i remember that foxtel was like a hundred bucks or something a month yeah right uh, and I think now i'm still pays for that actually yeah but i don't think it costs a hundred dollars anymore i think they they had to bring it down to make it competitive with these other ones especially if they're um target market it's mm. older people we still want just one streaming service that has everything on it, but, you know. What do you think they'll call it? Um, uh, impossible. <laughs> because <laughs> licensing and market, it just, it just, I can't see that happening. Well, unless you actually have um, a streaming service that, that has everything but is paying for the rights for everything from everybody else. Is that the one that they have to... Implant into your mind? Yes. Yeah, right. That's according to my cunning plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of cunning plans, you are our podcaster, Kayla. Yes. Can you take us through the, the podcasting process? This yeah, is I absolutely can. insight. Well, for Triple R in particular, I can take you through if you want to become a podcaster here and then mm. what it will entail. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it was like nearly two years back now that I emailed the R's and I kind of selected a little tick button that said podcasting. I was called in um, within the week by Grace, the volunteer coordinator, Mm -hmm. and had a good little walk around the studio and office space. Um, We had a natter for a good hour in one of the studios here, and then she was like, keep your eye on your emails and I'll let you know when something comes up. Unfortunately, podcasting is definitely the most popular (laughs) of all the volunteer roles. Really? Yeah, really hard to get into. Um, I had to wait between like eight and ten months. Um, And finally, Zero-G became available for me, which had two ticks. Number one, I found out that Zero-G focuses on things like Doctor Who and Neil Gaiman books. Mm -hmm. And number two, I'd never listened. And so now I get to do it every week. Um, (laughs) And I get to come in and take the ums and ahs out when I'm feeling generous. And when I'm not, I just do a quick slice and dice um, of all the songs <laughs> in the middle and top and tails at the end. Yep. Um, and then I throw in uh, what we call IDs. Uh-huh. And so you'd notice if you've been listening to Zero G for a while that there's plentiful actors and directors and writers who have a little shout out for listening to the station and I've got this little USB and I get to go in and I see how far back they go. And it's amazing. Like, it's nearly 20 years, but I think the show's been going for mm. over 20, 25, 25, something like that. Yeah. So that's one of the most amazing things is to know how many people out there might be listening and are connected through this genre. I, I kind of find it um, a bit sobering sometimes to realise that... Uh, a chunk of the people who've um, been on the show are no longer with us, apart from in the digital memory store. Uh, and that, that that does make me stop and think every now and then. Yeah, and it is so good to have that digital memory. Yeah. And there's like the new website that Triple R has. They've kind of built that element into it for the podcasting in particular and even the oh. back end. Um, so it's all very different to how I first came on and what we do now. So Triple R will retain that for, you know, in perpetuity mm-hmm. and have all those digital voices and maybe the way that the sci-fi world that we live in is going anyway. <laughs> of course it is. Indeed. You know, I mean, we're at the stage where you're starting to see um, actors who have died who are now being digitally resurrected. 
and be Where used. am I seeing that? I don't uh, know if I want to look at it, but please tell me anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's been a simple, simple sort of thing where somebody's died during the production or just after it, and they need to have them appear again briefly, and and they can't just do it by having um, another actor playing them with their back turned. I'm thinking of Peter Cushing in um, Star Wars movies, uh, you know, totally digitally recreated, yeah. or or even when they just um, they just want an actor to be younger, which is a, a trend that's a, a horrifying trend f- when you think about it. For, for actors. when they go through the stages of life, uh, or just yeah, younger yeah. in general for uh, the whole role. Captain Marvel, um, Samuel L. Jackson, they turned him back to Sam Jackson from the 1990s yeah. for the whole movie. So you know. <laughs> So that's a thing too. Was he still as lippy when he was in the 90s versus now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he definitely was. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's one of the technological uh, hazards of the 21st century that we've encountered. I don't mind if anyone fixes me up a little as long as <laughs> they don't get a fright when they see me in the flesh. Well, that could be difficult if, um, in terms of uh, radio because it doesn't work that way. Oh, true. And, and, <laughs> and voices often don't age as much. I can I can remember the uh, the monkey television series, um, or monkey magic as it's sometimes known. Uh, I remember that with Piggy. Yeah, Pigsy and Tripitaka and uh, Monkey and Sandy and um, a bunch of other people and Horse. That's right. That's the yeah. other one. Uh, and that show, um, there were thirteen episodes that were never dubbed into English. So many years later, they got those thirteen episodes. And they got the original actors back, as many as they could get, wow. to do the roles again, to dub it into English. Yeah. And there's not a whole lot of change between between the actors in terms of the fact that it's years later. I wonder if just the quality of the audio anyway would have just kind of altered that sound, even mm. if the voice never aged. Yeah. Like it just would have not ever been the same. Yeah, you could do that too. You can fix it up and speed people up or slow people down, whatever you and choose I to do. And I think I've done that before to you, Rob. <laughs> oh, really? No, not for the whole thing, not the final edit. Because I de- just when I'm making the Christmas special. Because I demand that you do. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla Larson, our podcaster, she makes us sound good, or if not <laughs> good, at our at our best worst. <laughs> uh, okay, well, um, I wanted to talk about um, another show after this, but first we're going to have uh, a Bowie track, which is included in Peaky Blinders, um, Lazarus. And it's from his Black Star album, of course, and it was in episode five of season three of Peaky Blinders back in uh, 2016. Because I oh, forget these are these these drop once a year these seasons, don't they? About every 18 months now. Oh yeah. my god! So it's been it's a little bit to wait. Yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You know the weird thing about David Bowie's Black Star album, apart from other many weird things, uh, is that when you take it out of the CD player, it's so totally black that you can't really tell you've actually ejected it. It sits there in the tray and it uh, sort of vanishes. Lazarus, uh, there, Mr. Bowie, Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio here on our two-hour special. Now, in the year 2020... (laughs) You knew I was going to have to say something about that coming up. It's such a, a science fictional date. 2020. Where's my jetpack? I haven't been issued it by the uh, the Mandalorians yet. I haven't earned my jetpack. <laughs> a 
apparently, according to Jeff Ryman in his book Air in 2004, in the year 2020, you no longer need a computer to use the internet because the internet can be accessed directly through your brain. Hmm. Maybe, maybe not. American John Boone became the first human to walk on Mars in 2020 in Kim Stanley Robinson's book Red Mars, way back in 1993. And in the film Mission to Mars, done in 2000, uh, that's actually set in 2020 as well. Now, I've talked about this a fair bit, but 2020 is the year of Arno Stark in the Iron Man comic book universe. A villainous version of Iron Man, a descendant actually, but in the current Marvel Comics continuity, Arno Stark is the actual biological son of Howard and Maria Stark, and Tony is the adopted one, and Arno has just taken over Stark Unlimited in the comics because it's been revealed that Tony is not the original Tony Stark, but is a clone. And his Stark legacy has been legally nullified. What clone rights? Where are they? And next year in 2020, it will be Arno's year. And he will fasten on to the Stark legacy with both gauntleted hands and pretty much take over the role of Iron Man for the year, or at least until as far as they think they can carry the crossover. Uh, and there are a whole lot of other tie-in comics too coming your way from uh, the Iron Stable, like Ironheart and um, War Machine and Force Works and a bunch of other related ones. Machine Man, a lot of them to do with um, AI and computer rights as well, a uh, particular trope that they want to explore this year. And the film Reign of Fire set in 2020 as well. So we should all be sort of be, be swarmed by dragons at the moment, circling around us, destroying our civilization. I suppose there's a metaphor for that in the, uh, the current bushfire crisis in Australia. The film Godzilla Final Wars is set in 2020 as well as the real Thunderbirds. <laughs> well, let's not call them the real ones, but uh, the 20, 2004 Jonathan Frakes one, uh, that was set this year too. I guess they'd be internationally rescuing us from Godzilla. And Real Steel as well, set this year. So many things from the future now coming into play. And of course, the animated series Sea Lab 2020, so effectively sent up in Sea Lab 2021 <laughs> from 1972. And Terror Hawks, another Jerry Anderson production set in 2020. And I think I mentioned sometime during today, probably when we were talking about cats, uh, Dark Angels from the year 2000, or Dark Angel, singular. Um, although there was more than one, then there were lots of clones in that too. Um, the second half of season one and the first half of season two are set in the year 2020 after a uh, uh, micro-apocalypse, uh, an EMP called the, uh, the the Pulse, I think, which um, knocked out a lot of records and stuff. But uh, anyway, along the same sort of apocalyptic lines, um, Dollhouse in 2009. Uh, that came out with the Joss Whedon series and um, the series finale takes place in 2020. And along the lines of Doctor Who, the episodes The Hungry Earth and Cold Blood are also set in 2020. One that I saw uh, quite some time ago, a docudrama on television, Super Volcano, which depicted the horrific effects of the um, Yellowstone uh, Caladra exploding. 
that was set into 2020 and essentially changed the face of planet Earth. And the film Edge of Tomorrow, again, 2020, but um, uh, repeatedly changing the landscape as they went through a sort of a, a, a groundhog day through, a, through an alien invasion. And, of course, the, uh, the 1965 film Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. Um, now, I'll see if I can get this name right without looking it up. Pavel Klesentchev, originally doing the, um, the, uh, the Russian version of this, but later uh, messed around with by Roger Corman, re-edited into Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. A great film. If you can uh, see it in either the, um, the, uh, the haggled-about version or uh, preferably the original Pavel Klesentchev version of Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet. What is that one called? Uh, uh, Planet Burger, Planet of Storms or something like that. Mangling the Russian quite effectively there. So welcome to 2020 coming up next week on Zero G. And if they don't play the Sea Lab 2020 theme on Radio Marinara, um, on this weekend, I'll be very disappointed because <laughs> it's just their theme. Uh, but I think we'll go with um, Zager and Evans bouncing even further into the future. Now that we are living in the future, in Zero G's future, uh, we've got to get in even further out there. That's it. Higher, faster, more. Zager and Evans in the year 25. 25. Hello, this is Wendy Padbury. I played Zoe Herriot on Doctor Who and Sue Craig on Free Wheelers. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Zero G? Well, I'm quite sure that doesn't add up. But it does with Zager and Evans in the year 2525. What did you get if you add all that up? Uh, 2 plus 5 is 7, plus 2 is 9, plus 5 is 14. Ah, uh, well, it's 2019. So there you go. So much for numerology here on Zero G on our two-hour special. So I didn't have to think too hard. Uh, excuse the squeak here as I move myself a little bit closer to where I have to be. There we go. And uh, we need to think... I didn't have to think too hard for the end track for today before we get out of your way after our two-hour special and make way for... or make room, make room for Holly Alexander who's coming up uh, filling in for Joe Brunatic after this show, which means... Do I still get to say... Astral Glamour. Yes, I do. I'll say it anyway because I want to say it <laughs> for next. Now, I think for the final track today, or the vinyl track, you've heard a few vinyl tracks on the show today and that explains the remarkably scratchy archival quality of some of them. Um, I think we'll go out with a track from the Crypt Keepers Christmas Scary Little Christmas. At least I hope we will go out with that. And that is uh, Should Old Cadavers Be Forgot. Except I'm getting a funny reading on that, on the uh, on the system. So I will try and cue it off an alternative. Yes, Zero G has backup plans, pretty much always. <laughs> so we'll go with our backup plan anyway that and this is by Jack Wall and it's not um, not particularly a tune you won't be familiar with to help you celebrate New Year uh, but the words may be a little bit unfamiliar and a bit ghoulish but then again that's zero G. Uh, thank you this week to Megan McHugh our 
co-host who is having a well-deserved leave, and to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, who came in and helped us with understand the mystery and the mayhem that is Peaky Blinders. That's it for Zero G for the year. And uh, kind of, yeah, maybe the decade, depending on how you want to play it. <laughs> G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.